Chapter 12 Forgiveness From Transactional Love to Absolute Love What, then, does it mean to forgive? In the conventional telling of the Eden story, the original sin is an outrage against a sovereign master. In Dante's calculus of sin and punishment, humankind's offence against a perfect God was infinitely vile and so required an infinite payment and punishment, which humans cannot provide. For no obedience, no humility he offered later could have been so deep that it could match the heights he meant to reach through disobedience. And so, according to the traditional telling, Christ steps between us and God's wrath, absorbing the penalty on the cross. All of this, of course, comes as the ripple effects of what is seen as Eve's disobedience. In the Restoration revision to the story, Eve's action was a noble gesture that launched the great cosmic enterprise. Eve introduced us to a world of experiences, both sweet and bitter. So in the restored church, what meaning does forgiveness have? And why must God forgive us if most of our offences are against other mortals? Where is the harmony to be found in either punishment or forgiveness? asked Dostoevsky's Ivan. The Greek word most commonly used for forgive is the same as the word sometimes translated as remit, ephiamai. Its primary meaning is to let go or to lay aside. This meaning works perfectly well to capture the essence of most human forgiveness. We lay aside that hurt, that resentment, or even that memory, which dams up the flow of brotherly love. Sin and forgiveness alike might be profitably reframed by considering the aptly named Olive Leaf Revelation, the Lord's message of peace to his people. Here we learn about the glory of the celestial kingdom, of which the Comforter is the promise and foretaste. We are then given to understand that the light and love of Jesus Christ bathe the entire universe. He is in the sun, and the light of the sun, and the power thereof by which it was made, as also he is in the moon, and is the light of the moon, and the power thereof by which it was made, as also the light of the stars, and the power thereof by which they were made, and the earth also, and the power thereof, even the earth upon which you stand, and the light which shineth, which giveth you light, is through him who enlighteneth your eyes, which is the same light that quickeneth your understandings, which light proceedeth forth from the presence of God to fill the immensity of space. The light, which is in all things, giveth life to all things. This holy influence, this light of Christ, is actually made synonymous with his very person. He that ascended up on high, as also he descended below all things, and that he comprehended all things, that he might be in all and through all things the light of truth, which is the light of Christ. As we saw in Nephi's vision, God the heavenly Son, incarnate as the babe of Bethlehem, was the embodiment of perfect love, a love of infinite power to permeate the universe of all things and persons, 
uniting all in a heavenly Zion, a holy community, the Church of the Firstborn. Why then is our human community fractured, broken, disunited? The instinctive answer is sin. However, that answer substitutes a cliché for an explanation. Communities, nations, families, friendships and relationships of every kind are wounded, shattered even, when the bonds of human affection are damaged by resentment, suspicion, jealousy, anger and a thousand other impediments to love. Sin is the name we give to the myriad choices we make that disrupt the irradiation of the universe by Christ's perfectly unifying, bonding, selfless love. In other words, when we sin, we erect barriers to the flow of Christ's life-affirming and life-uniting light. Our trespasses, from this perspective, are the rocks that block the current of love that proceeds from the presence of God to fill the immensity of space. Harmful actions are the blockage, the impediments we create to God's designs for a universal harmony. We are the channels through whom God's love passes to another, and hence God's greatest concern is that we do not obstruct the flow. Forgiveness clears the channels for their love to emanate freely. One of the most astonishing things Joseph said about the celestial kingdom is this. If you do not accuse each other, God will not accuse you. If you have no accuser, you will enter heaven. This statement reflects a peculiarly Latter-day Saint version of heaven. Someone's refusal to forgive me impedes our relationship and in that way constrains my heaven as well as hers. This is hard doctrine. Regardless of my personal sanctity or righteousness, I cannot experience a celestial existence if love does not flow without inhibition between myself and all members of that heavenly community. Because, as we discussed earlier, authentic, loving relationships are not preparation for heaven. They constitute heaven. In a very real sense, our own willingness to set aside our hurts and injuries has a direct, essential bearing on the quality of that heaven enjoyed by others, and vice versa. Can God set aside our sins as we set aside those of our offenders? The answer to this question is suggested by Jesus when he taught us to pray that we might be forgiven as we forgive our debtors. In other words, God is able to set aside our offences in the same way in which we set aside those of others. The nearer we get to our Heavenly Father, testified Joseph, the more we are disposed to look with compassion on perishing souls. We feel that we want to take them on our shoulders and cast their sins behind our backs. That is the essence of forgiveness. This principle is reaffirmed explicitly by Paul, who wrote the Corinthians explaining that one way Christ atones or reconciles the world unto himself is simply by not imputing their trespasses unto them. In another, more vivid rendering of that verse, Christ was reconciling the world to himself 
not putting down on the liability side of their ledger their trespasses. Forgiveness, writes Henri Nouvin, demands of me that I step over that wounded part of my heart that feels hurt and wronged and that wants to put a few conditions between me and the one whom I am asked to forgive. This stepping over is the authentic practice of forgiveness. Is this really the same pattern for God's forgiveness of us? Doesn't Scripture say that ye may know if a man repenteth of his sins, if he will confess them and forsake them? While that Scripture is valid, the meaning may be otherwise than we have supposed. Confessing and forsaking are not the stages of repentance. They are evidence of a change of heart that has already occurred. They are not preconditions for God's forgiveness. As West translates Christ's final words to the apostles as they departed on their own healing ministries, any sins you forgive have been previously forgiven them. They are in a state of forgiveness. Christ has already opened the gates of heaven to us. The Wisdom of Solomon was a book of tremendous influence in the early Christian church and is found in the Apocrypha, which contains many things that are true, according to Doctrine and Covenants section 91 verse 1. The author of Wisdom celebrated a God in this mould. You are merciful to all, for you can do all things, and you overlook people's sins, so that they may repent for you love all things that exist. Christ has already laid our trespasses aside. As Wendell Berry wrote of his own mother, which mother's love, says Elder Holland, is the nearest to Christ's redemptive love. So complete has your forgiveness been, I wonder sometimes if it did not precede my wrong, and I erred, safe found, within your love. If we fail to see the father of the prodigal son as our own heavenly parent, we have missed the story's import. As Henri Nouvin writes, our heavenly father has no desire to punish his children. They have already been punished excessively by their own inner or outer waywardness. The father wants simply to let them know that the love they have searched for has been, is, and always will be there for them.